Hello, my name is Scott Bradley and this is Scott Squad Podcast and today I'm joined by Stevie Greve who is the Head of Analysis and Opposition Scouting at Dundee United. How are we and welcome to the show. Good, thanks. Thanks for inviting me on. Oh, no problem at all. So we're just going to dive right into it. Uh, at what age did you realise that you wanted to get involved in coaching, Stevie? Well, I started when I was 16, so pretty early. I didn't. I don't know if I ever realised that I wanted to be involved in coaching. It was just kind of... I was playing futsal, helped a few kids. The guy that run the, the local community centre for the council just kind of asked me if I fancy getting involved in coaching and then um, just been involved ever since, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Did you play for any amateur teams growing up? I played for like a few boys clubs and stuff like that. Played um, played amateurs when... 15, 16, 17 and then I kind of chucked it at 18 well last year I played I played centre back and there's somebody who's 5 foot 5 it's, um, it's no ideal so I was okay but I played futsal until I was 21 and then I kind of just made the choice do I want to spend my Monday nights coaching or do I want to play futsal mm-hmm. and when it came down to I thought my time was better spent coaching Mm-hmm. And you've got some stories, uh, Stevie, it's unbelievable. Uh, and you went to America for six months. Uh, how did you find that experience? And what kind of coaching were you doing over there? So I went with a company called United Soccer Academy. It was kind of one of those babysitting sessions, to be honest. They would give you some classes in the morning. It'd be like soccer squirts and stuff. And then you would coach a couple of travel teams at night. It was For me, it was more just a, a growing-up experience. I was 21. Um, it's the first time I'd kind of had to rely on myself for cooking or getting to work or anything like that. So the experience overall was was mixed. I didn't think it was a good level of coaching, didn't really learn anything. I thought the organisation at the time was a bit of a shambles. I've spoke to a few people since then and I've said it on another podcast. Um, people have pulled me up for it, but that was my, my experience at the time. The good thing about it was I came back more confident. I'd coached maybe four or five sessions a day, every day, for for six months. And then when I came back, I uh, spoke to John Holt and I joined Dundee's Youth Academy. So it was it was a worthwhile experience in the end, but at the time, it was I remember just being uh, underwhelmed by it all, to be honest. And you were saying that you were working uh, at Dundee with the Youth Academy. What kind of like age level were you working with at the Youth Academy? So I started off in the development centre. Holt had put me there. Um, two or three weeks later he asked me to go and help with the 13s and then towards the end of that season he asked me to go and help with the 11s as well um, and at that at that time I was doing okay I was doing quite well and then there was a space opened up as John Holt's assistant coach with the 17s and then he moved me up to them so I was taking most of the technical work um, and a little bit of the tactical work in terms of like attacking shape and stuff which was good and correct me if I'm wrong right but is it true you were the youngest head coach in Switzerland when you moved over there yeah I was only 25 so um, I'm sure there's been young somebody younger since then but yeah I was the youngest head coach in Switzerland at the time I'm sure there was somebody younger before but yeah it was a good experience I, there was quite a few boys in the team who were who were a bit older but most of the guys were around my age actually which was nice so, I bet I could relate to them quite well. Mm-hmm. So how did that opportunity come about then to go to Switzerland and be a manager? So my wife got a job. Well, she wasn't my wife at the time, but later I got a job as a nanny. And part of that was she got a place to stay. So I went over 
I managed to find myself a job with a British coaching company called Intersoccer. Um, it was quite similar to the one in America, to be honest, but it was a good entry route into the country. It allowed me to get enough money to, to find a flat. I'd actually just been paid off from Scottish Hydro. I'd been doing the door-to-door sales for gas and electricity, so I had a bit of a payoff, which allowed me to go and fly over two or three times, find the house, find the job, get some stuff in place for actually going over. I settled in for about a week, 10 days, got the job, started winter soccer, and then when I was there, I met a few people who worked in different clubs. Um, I met the president of FC Glong, and he said he, he felt that my, my personality and what he thought my coaching style would be would be really suitable for the team at that time. So it just came from, I, I must have sent about 50, 60 begging letters of, can somebody please give me a job as a coach? <laughs> and um, luckily, Olga got in touch and we went for lunch. Um, and he offered me the job and then it, it was quite late into pre-season actually it was like two weeks before the start of the season so um, yeah it was a fantastic experience fantastic opportunity and one I'm, I'm actually really grateful for So what was your reaction when you found out you got the job? I was a little bit surprised I remember asking him I says, my French is okay it's not good uh, he says a lot of the boys are bilingual they'll help you with that but he said that it was more just, you know, beat yourself, coach to the level that you're at just now and and just treat it as a, a good learning experience for your future because you're only 24, 25 at the time. So uh, I wasn't shocked to get the job because I, I was pretty confident in my own ability at the time. Um, so there was no shock. It wasn't like, oh, my God, I've got the job. It was a, OK, don't mess it up. That was kind of my, my main reaction. Mm-hmm. And see, for example, when you were doing team talks and like when you took uh, training for the first time, did you ever feel a wee bit nervous, or did you have like full faith and confidence in your ability? It's it's weird. Like and my wife mentions it. Like I don't get nervous. Um, I I, I think I maybe do now, but I didn't back then. I remember um, my first my first few team talks were very much just in English, and I would get a couple of bilingual boys to to translate and they were good with me which was nice um, well, as the season progressed I did more of it in French but we had a multilingual dressing room with some Kosovan boys Albanian German um, Swiss French Swiss German Swiss Italian um, so there was a couple of African boys in the team so there was a it was hard to do it all in the one language Like so I would do most of it in French um, sometimes I would do bits of it in English and then the, the Swiss German and German boys would figure out between themselves but most of it was in English initially and then transitioned to more French because I felt comfortable with it um, there was one game where we, were, we played really badly in the first 15 minutes and I just decided I was going to go mental at half time and me as a, a little guy doesn't look particularly um, intimidating or threatening I'd, I'd decided I was going to go nuts at half time and to be fair, like, I'd never done it before in my life. I like, had to, like, lose it with anybody. So the boys go in the dressing room. I walk around the outside, the back of the back of the changing area. And the president walks past me and says, what are you doing? I said, I'm going to go mental, but I'm kind of half laughing inside because I know what's going to happen and I'm not entirely comfortable with it. So I'm standing at the back of the dressing room, right, and I'm massaging my cheeks. 
mm-hmm. and I'm trying to get the smile off my face. Gone. So I'm massaging my cheeks for 30 seconds, a few deep breaths, and I'm like, right, when you go in and you start going mental, just do it in Scottish. They won't have a clue what you're saying, but just sound angry. So I've went in, and I've just started shouting at somebody, and I've booted a bottle, and I've just started going nuts about how lazy they were. I can't remember really what I said, but I just remember going absolute mental just in Scottish, and nobody had a clue what I said. But I think they got the gist. And I think I said, dégagé. Just like, get out. At the end of it. Yeah. And like, they're all like, Kelly Laguan. Run up the, run up the stairs and up to the pitch. <laughs> I'm sitting in the dressing room, like, it's just erupted with laughter. Because uh-huh. it was like the weirdest experience of my life of me just shouting at people. And then the president was like, that sounded quite good. <laughs> and then we went up to take the second half and we played much better. So that was, that was one of the things that I always remember from, from being a head coach for the first time. Oh, that's superb, Stevie. Um, do you think you'll ever become a manager again? Uh, I don't, I mean, I don't know. It depends on the level, to be honest. I actually had a conversation with Robbie about this in about January. He was doing um, an assignment for his course at Manchester Met for sport directorship, and one of the tasks was to speak to some staff about helping create a career plan and asked him about it. He said, look, if you want to be a head coach, you need to be coaching. And I was supposed to be coaching the 16s, but you never have enough time as an analyst. It's, it's an 80-hour-a-week job. So he'd, he'd said, you know, if you, if you want to do it, you need to be coaching and making sure your name's out there. So I had the same sort of discussion with Tony. Tony Asgard had said, you know, you could see me in the future being like a head of recruitment or a sporting director because I, I seemed to have a confidence with it. So Robbie had said the same thing. So... I don't know. I don't know. It's it's something I would like to do, definitely, but whether the opportunity ever comes, you know, ever to be a first-team coach or an assistant manager, I, I don't know. So the answer is yes, I would like to do it, but whether the opportunity is ever there to make the steps necessary to get to that point is, is a different question. So I don't know would be the answer. Uh, so how did the opportunity to work in India come about? Because that, that was fascinating when I was doing the prep for this and your story in India was tremendous. So how did that opportunity come about? So when I was working in Switzerland, the owner of Baichung Gutia Football Schools, which Baichung is one of the part owners, um, boy Anurag Kilnani got in touch with me because they'd used one of my books for coach education. So when I was in Switzerland, I wrote a bunch of books, coaching the 4231 related, because that's kind of what world-class coaching were trying to sell at the time so they used the book for coach ed anorak said uh, coincidentally his wife was studying at lausanne university um and would we would i be up for meeting him going for a coffee etc so we sat for three or four hours at the key in lausanne and he just kind of outlined what the academy was how they were going to build it over the years what the long-term ambition was and i was hooked straight away it was part humanitarian, part trying to develop a genuinely like elite level pathway for kids from India to you know, outside of India, preferably to Europe, but if they go and play in Australia, Japan, Korea, then, then that's also good. So I was taken in by it. He came to watch me take training. Um, at the time, it was kind of towards the, the middle point of the season, so I was doing most of it in French, so I was going between French and English. Um, and he was quite impressed, and then we kept in touch. He, he flew back to watch me coach a game. 
I remember a game very vividly. We were we were one 0 down and we we're playing against a really aggressive four four two kind of Leipzig style team. And then we went three five two and changed the shape. And I think we ended up winning the game. And he actually said to me in the game, "I liked all the changes you made. Um, would you like to be the head coach of the academy?" So from that point on, I was we spoke about what it would take to get me there, and I think we'd done it quite quickly. And then I moved to India. Not long after that, it took a wee bit of time to get a visa because obviously we had to fly back to Scotland to move our stuff away from Switzerland and then um, get everything ready for moving. Uh, did you have any issues with adapting to the culture? Yeah, I, I was in denial at the time, but I tried to tell people I didn't have culture shock, but I definitely did. Um, I remember getting off the plane, just getting punched in the face by heat and humidity, um, sitting in a car at six o'clock in the morning, and it wasn't busy for Delhi, but it was the busiest I'd ever seen a road in my life. Um, and that would include being in New York with that, and just going, wow, it was so busy here. And then the boss being like, no, no, this is nothing. Um, and then going to places like the mall, but seeing the poverty next to the mall, where's this world-class mall, but with just extreme poverty outside it. And just the extreme of the world being there. And I think like when you leave, you have a different sense of perspective on life after being there. It's just, you you can't put into words the difference in life for, for people in India who have nothing to people who have nothing in Scotland. It's just... You know, we think that we're poor here for some people, but genuinely, like, we're lucky to have what we have if you have nothing in Scotland compared to what they have. It's just, it's, it's an incredible place. I would always encourage people to go and visit if they're, if they're able to. Mm-hmm. Um, how would you sum up the standard of coaching and the standard of football there? Were you surprised when you went over or, or was it, it, like, what you expected? I was, I was actually surprised at the level because they're at... There are actually a lot of good players, but if you were to break down a player into technical qualities, tactical qualities and physical qualities, um, you never get the three. You might get somebody who's unbelievable technically, who's also lightning quick, but just no idea what they're doing. Um, and th- th- the same could be true for in Canada as well. Um, or you'll get players who are unbelievable at knowing what to do with the ball, but they just don't have the ability to pull it off. Like they make the right choices because, you know, they've studied football or whatever. Because there's a lot of them that do that. So it's interesting. The level of player is quite good, but you can tell that nutrition-wise doesn't help them. Um, the fact that they were flip-flops all day doesn't help them because a lot of them have weak ankles and knees, which I think comes from wearing flip-flops. Um, so I was I was surprised that the players were as good as what they were. Um, and I found that over the over the three years I was there, they're very adaptable. Like you teach them a new way of doing it, they just they just say okay, and they work as hard as they can in most cases to try to try and get better. The coaches, you have to get used to them turning up twenty minutes late. Mm-hmm. Right, there's a thing called Delhi time. Everybody knows that Delhi time is twenty minutes after the agreed time. So you would have to tell them a meeting was at half eleven for them to turn up at twelve. Which is fine. Like you, you, you learn to, you learn to live with it. You can never be overly angry about it because uh, daily time might happen to you at some point. You know, just the way traffic and life is. So there's those things to take into consideration. But if you ask a, an Indian coach to turn up at six o'clock in the morning for a coach ed session, they'll be there. 
They might turn up at ten past six, but they will be there. And when they get there, they will give absolutely everything and pay attention and try and apply it. So, um, if they if they get their act together, then they'll do very well at international level. It's just putting all the pieces in place for such a big country with so many people is a lot more complicated than than what it is in smaller countries. Was there like any? Was there ever a moment when you were in India where you're like, oh, you know what? I regret coming here, or like, do or do you have like no regrets whatsoever? No, no, I don't. I don't have any regrets. I go there are times where, I, I, and because of my nature, I get really frustrated with little things quite easily, which I probably should have done. But um, there are always times where I'd be like, "Well, why do we not do this better? How can we not be more efficient?" Or you'd ask for something, but it was never going to come. But again, that's probably naivety or a lack of experience on my part at the time. So no, I would never. I never say I regret going. There are other choices I could have made at that point in my life, but you know, when I went, I uh, I had a great time. I met some great people. Um, I had some unbelievable opportunities, like the TV and stuff like that. So, no, never for a second would I would I say I regret going. I would I would actively encourage you know Scottish people who are looking for an opportunity in coaching to actually go there because it tests everything that you thought was right and the things that you have to change because of culture and climate and conditions and the coaching level that other people and everything else that goes with it. So things that people would say in England or Scotland, oh, no, you don't do this. When you're in different parts of the world, you have to adapt. And that's that's one of the biggest things I learned when I was there was how to adapt and learn, you know, what considerations to take into and why people think the way they do and how that affects what you're trying to do to work around that or to work together with them. Mm-hmm. And uh, as you were saying, you were on TV being a pundit. How did you find that? <laughs> I mean, that was really good. I enjoyed it. Um, I met some good people. You know, Arke Srinivasan, who was the producer and director and um, quite often the presenter, he got me into it and he stuck by me. You know, It would have been easy, I think, for the TV station to, once they had me cover, I think the first eight weeks when you go into a new season, to just get rid of the guy that nobody knows and replace him with a big name but they stuck by me they gave me my own show so that was incredible the schedule and the, the my working week after TV happened was, was crazy because obviously they're five hours behind or five hours ahead so uh, you're finishing work at half three four in the morning and then you're doing coach ed at seven o'clock the next morning so you just have to kind of learn to live with no sleep that is it's incredible. Mm-hmm. So after India, you moved to Canada. So how did that come about? Um, Kevin McGreskin at the time was the technical director of the Bahamas, and he'd asked me a few times if I fancied working with him there. And um, as like the head of the junior national teams, like twenty ones, nineteens, etc. Which I, I, I was keen on, but financially it was never ever going to happen. It just it just couldn't be done. So we always kept in touch, and then he moved to Canada and. I think once he got stuff settled at Burlington, he, he kind of made the offer of, like, do you want to come and do this job? So we went over and met the staff, met, saw the town, saw everything that was going on in the club, and I thought, and I was really interested in Kevin's ideas, um, thought he was a good guy. So I went over and accepted the job, and me and my wife we flew over two or three weeks later. So you're now back in Scotland, uh, Stevie, working for Dundee United. For people who don't know, what exactly does your role entail at the club? Um, so if you, if you break down my role, 
into little parts. There's all position analysis, which is trying to figure out how to beat the opponent. You've got our own team analysis, which is assessing how we're playing and what things can we do to try and play better. Um, then you've got data analysis, which is our team, other teams and players. So you're trying to look for trends and make projections about where we're at, what do we need to improve upon, should we be worried about anything, are we over or underperforming, etc. Um, and then recruitment analysis, which I've been involved in uh, quite a bit since October. So assessing, you know, how do you finish which position in the league? How do you work backwards from that? What should each game look like? Um, how do you then create a model which would help you assess performance? And then, you know, are the players doing what they should do? How can we find ways to help them meet the targets per position that you'd be looking for per game and across various microcycles, mesocycles, um, and then over the course of the season? And then if there are players that we need to fill in the squad with, then uh, my role is mostly to try and give Sean and Tony um, as much information as possible to allow them to assess the players that come in uh, or players that come into them will look at what data they've got what, what video they've got and then try and not come to a decision but my job my job essentially is just to give information to all the people who need it whether it's the manager the assistant coach the goalkeeper coach um, the recruitment team sport director so it's very much a case of just managing information and creating as much insight and context to things as possible yeah and uh, this is a question I want to ask you, right? So I have this debate with my friends all the time. Do you think stats at times can be deceiving? Yeah, yeah, of course. Stats lie. Like the league table lies. People say the league table doesn't lie, but it does. You know, you have teams that overperform, underperform, teams that you would expect to regress to the mean or um, go towards the mean for kind of what you would expect. So, yeah, stats lie all the time. Like... Um, I'll not name names, but there was a player last year who I think that their, their expected goals was 21, and they actually scored 12. So, or they, they scored 21, but they expect goals was 12. So there's a, a lot of variance between that. So then you're looking at, well, does he score headers, free kicks, penalties, long-range shots? So you can look at you know, what a player is expected to do, but are they within a certain amount of variance for that? Because... You know, you're going to have players that have a lot of variance and that's because of good finishers or you know, historically they've done that, which some players do. Um, you can look at some teams' point totals through expected goals or their projections. So, um, again, one team in the Premier League whose expected goals last year, I think it was 0.91 per game, but they finished in a position where usually you need 1.52, eh, 1.25. So, you're looking at them and going, well, they'll probably regress, but defensively they're sound so it's just a case of converting more chances or creating a, a better volume of chances or con- converting at a higher rate uh, in comparison to other teams in the league for example so you're always going to have a variance of maybe 3 or 4% across the league if a team's converting at 9% they're going to struggle if they're converting at 18% they're probably going to be close to the top of the league but Again, that comes down to shot total, shot volume, conversion rate, sustainability. So, yeah, stats lie all the time. It's the difficulty with any form of data analysis is what what data is important and how do you translate it to make it give insight and context? 
how essential uh, and important is technology in coaching nowadays? Uh, coaching is an art, right? It's a skill. So technology is there to help, but if you as a coach are reliant on technology, you're probably not a good coach. Your job as a coach is to be on the field, having designed a very good session underneath a good overall plan, and then give insight to the players. Like technology, you get things like player maker, which will tell you how many touches you've had or how many passes you made with each foot or gate analysis and things like that. But coaching essentially comes down to how do you get your ideas across to the players and how do you get them to buy into it and then how do you improve them over time. There's the information I talked about before through opposition analysis, data analysis, team analysis, player analysis. They're information sources which can help you um, portray your ideas or help kind of focus your information. But when it comes down to it, if you can't coach a basic game of possession, you're not going to help your players keep the ball better. So um, technology helps, but it's very, very unimportant in the grand scheme of things. Mm -hmm. Um, And Stevie, you've got a UEFA A licence. How did you find doing that course and was there any difficulties during the process of it? Uh, the only difficulties I had really was uh, travelling from India initially and then travelling from Canada to finish it. Uh, that was that was the only real difficulty. I don't want to say it was an easy course, but if you're if you're a good coach at a reasonably good level and you have a clear idea of how you would solve the problems that you're going to see within the practices you design and you have an understanding of where things might go wrong, then it's not difficult because you can't fail it if you're a good coach. Mm-hmm. Or if your session is designed properly and it flows and the timings that you step in to give some information or to correct things, you know, if you do them properly, you'll pass. So the difficulties are generally with the assignments, like tactical theory, uh, creating a periodization plan, doing the match analysis. There we are. I think those are the parts where people kind of slip up, to be honest, because uh, it's all fine and well being a good coach, but if you don't understand basic psychology or you don't understand uh, periodization or you don't understand how to analyse a match and really take the key information from it to help the players, those are the bits people, I think, fall there. Hey, Stevie, it's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, I've really enjoyed having you on the show, honestly. Thank you so much for coming on. No problem. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, cheers, mate. Cheers.